0: Welcome everyone. This is Albert, host of Mission Daily. I'm here today with Michael Hansen of CEO of Cengage. Michael, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Albert. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. So before we get going, we always like to we always let our guests tell exactly uh, what their company does. So, Michael, what is Cengage?
1: Albert, that's a very good question. And probably most of your listeners don't associate anything with the name. Uh, however, many of them will have used our product. So Cengage is the largest. U.S. provider of course material, and let me put that in plain English. When you go to college, you have to acquire, depending on your professor, you have to get uh, books, uh, you have to get digital materials. We provide those materials, and as I said, we are the largest provider of those materials in, uh, in the United States. There's something unique about Cengage, though,
0: because uh, there's a lot of book providers or course material providers. What is, is there something specifically unique about what Cengage offers?
1: yeah i think there is uh, something that we've offered for over 100 years which is content that every student needs if you want to you know learn introduction to psychology introduction to chemistry whatever it is we have those we have that content so we cover pretty much every course that you could conceivably take in college but on top of that what's really unique is We've broken the old business model. And the old business model was that you went into the bookstore, you bought whatever the faculty told you to buy, and you ended up spending north of $400 per per year on those materials. And we said, this is not appropriate anymore for this day and age. And what we are offering now is essentially an all-you-can-learn subscription. So for $120 a semester or $180 a year, you can get every conceivable material that you need uh, for your studies. So you're talking about the price of
0: maybe one traditional textbook for one class. You can now have all the books you need for your, all your classes.
1: Exactly. Think of it as Netflix uh, of education, uh, just better. Yeah, this is fundamentally a
0: massive change. Uh, I do remember being, I'm going to date myself, college, 1998. But when you go to school, you buy your suite of books, in four hundred, I'm I'm gonna date you too. Like that was cheap. Like we was a thousand something. It seemed like, and then uh, I remember at the end of the semester during buybacks, they would buy your maybe you know your one hundred dollar book back for two dollars.
1: <laughs> and 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 Albert, th- this was the crazy system, and everybody kind of thought, well, it is what it is. We can't change it, and we were actually part of creating this system, so we were part of the problem. And then we decided, you know, since we created the problem, we might as well fix that problem. And, uh, and so we did. Now, elaborate
0: a little bit more on creating the problem. Because prior to your taking over at, or being CEO at, at Cengage, Sengage was more of a traditional publisher. Talk a little bit more about how the problem was created. I think I know, but of course, it was always interesting hearing your perspective.
1: Absolutely, Albert. And it was a, a, a kind of a cat and mouse game, right? Essentially what happened, the traditional textbook pro, uh, providers... Published the books, they went to the faculty, to your professor, and said, adopt my textbook. And then the students had to go out and buy it. And students found ways because, as you've told from your own experience, they said, these are crazy price points. Why am I paying $200 for a textbook? You're right. They found creative ways around not buying the textbook. So they really wanted to find ways. So they went out and, uh, you know, didn't buy a textbook at all because they thought they could get away without having a textbook. Uh, Then they found ways to rent it for a certain period of time, for a short period of time. Used books came into the market, sharing of books, PDF downloads, you name it, right? And as the volume for the industry decreased, so less and less people were buying actually new textbooks, the industry had nothing better to do than to raise prices. So this was this (laughs) crazy cat and mouse game where somebody had to come in and break this vicious cycle. And we felt we were in a good position because we had the content. We owned this content. We owned those textbooks. So we could disrupt the normal from within because a lot of people tried from the outside and didn't succeed.
0: Now, I remember during that time period, you know, when I was in college that, it felt, you're exactly right. We would talk, you would talk among your peers and be like, the book is the same. And they would say like, well, we can't buy it back because next year they're planning on going up in an edition, but it's like, I'm studying history. So what is it in this new book that you have? Like you have nothing and we wouldn't believe it. Right. And we, so we would try to find ways around it or we just wouldn't believe it and just still buy used books from our peers. It's totally right. Albert. And, And these are the kinds of
1: questions, right. That nobody, everybody, it was on, on the minds of the customers and For me, for us as providers of course materials, my ultimate customer is the student and the faculty. But the student had been long forgotten in this industry. Nobody cared because the faculty supposedly was making the decision. So what we did is we pivoted the company and we said, what have we done for the student? And we talked to the students. The student told us exactly what you are telling your your audience today. And we said, let's find ways to break and answer these questions in a way that is compelling to students.
0: This is pretty interesting. Um, Your history is, you know, if I look through your LinkedIn profile and do a little homework on you, I see that you've been in some type of publication or, um, you know, publication education for quite some time. Now, did you see this mindset shift happen at all the stops that you were at? Or did you really only see this mindset shift when you took over at Cengage?
1: No, I, I really saw it that crystal clear only at Sengage because I do believe, you know, my, my previous stops in the assessment world, you know, where you basically do large-scale testing of, of students or in science and technology, I think the situation was very, very different. Uh, at Sengage, what was truly unique in this part of the education system is what I described before. You have the faculty as the key decision maker. The industry focuses on the faculty to convince her or him to adopt your textbook, and mm-hmm. then the student becomes the forgotten, the forgotten entity, right? So this was really unique to this particular situation, and that offers us the opportunity to disrupt, and that was really exciting.
0: Gotcha. Now, how about a little bit? You know, some of the things we always like to talk about with our guests is a little bit about your background. So, not from the United States, uh, it looks like you came eventually to study at Columbia. What were you like as a young student uh, or just in your youth? Were you always interested in education or uh, were you, did you have other interests?
1: As you said, I, you know, I was born in a, in a decidedly middle class family in the Rust Belt of Germany at the time. And I grew up uh, with, you know, frankly, as you grew up there, within a very uh, you know, narrow bandwidth of what you would do, small town, uh, middle of Germany. And, uh, you know, it's uh, one thing to say about my career is it was definitely not long-term planning that led me to where I am. It was more seizing opportunities. And one of the things that always intrigued me, even as a young child, was when people told me it can't be done. You can't get out of this little town. You cannot possibly go to New York. You cannot possibly get admittance to Columbia. When everybody, somebody told me that, that got my juices flowing. And that I said like, okay, let's give it a try. Let's figure out whether it can be done. And I think that's probably the biggest red thread in my career.
0: I mean, you had to have been a good student, though. To get into Columbia is no small achievement. Yeah, no,
1: I was a good student. I was primarily good students, Albert, because I really hated when my mother looked over my shoulder when doing my homework. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. I wanted that freedom. So I got good grades because I really didn't want to be supervised. But uh, yeah, no, I was, I, was, I was a reasonably good student.
0: So when you came to America, did you know that you wanted to stay in America to work? Or did you think about going back to Germany? Like, what was your mindset as you, you know, obviously going abroad to study is not a small feat. It's a pretty big feat. Um, You know, where was your mindset at?
1: Terribly, terribly date myself uh, in answering that question. So my only knowledge about America, my primary knowledge about America when I came was derived from uh, television and mostly from telecevallis. Uh, who, you know, at the time played Kojak, which was like the only thing that was playing on on German television consistently. So that was really my source of information about the United States. Did you dress like Kojak when you came over? Well, I certainly cut my hair accordingly. (laughs) 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 But what I will say is I I literally arrived with this proverbial, you know, two suitcases, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed in New York. I said, like, let's figure it out. And... Uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll stay for two years because that was the time at Columbia. And then uh, maybe I'll stay another year and stay another year. And, you know, now it's 35 years in and the rest is history, as they say.
0: Gotcha. So when you were coming up, you're, you're at Columbia, international student, you got your Kojak look going. What were you thinking, I guess, when you when you first decided, hey, I'm going to stick it out. Like you mentioned, I'm going to try to do something in the United States. Was that would you, did you see opportunity? Did you think about home? Like how how did you make that choice? It's
1: it's a really good question and, and it brings me back sort of 35 years. I, you know, I think it comes back to that red thread that I talked about before. You know, a lot of the international students at the time, particularly the European-based students, the notion was you spend two years here, then you go back to your home country and that how the system was basically set up. And people said, yeah, you can't be successful in the U.S. if you're not from the U.S. And I said, this is not the U.S. that as I understand it, and I think you can. So that challenge of you can't be successful in the US, that was something that really intrigued me. And then I, you know, I got offered opportunities and people helped me along the way. And people said, you know, why don't, you know, I'll give you a job offer. I was actually surprised that people would come to campus and recruit people. I was like pleasantly surprised about that. And you know, uh, that led to one opportunity and uh, I guess I, I made some right choices along the way.
0: Yeah, the, uh, it looks like your first gig out of Columbia was to work at Boston Consulting Group, specifically inside of
1: e-commerce
0: and other, uh, other areas.
1: Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was consulting. And, and, and frankly, it was a, a big reflection that, A, I really didn't think I understood business well enough, just having gotten an MBA to, to make some smart decisions. So I wanted to learn more. So the mm-hmm. learning opportunity was great and the second thing it allowed me to procrastinate a little bit more because i could like try different industries and i worked in healthcare and i worked you know pharmaceuticals i helped uh, telecom clients and then over the course of my time there i developed a real interest and passion for media and that's where i finally ended up
0: that's some good self awareness though there's a lot of people that uh you know they don't realize their weaknesses. It sounds like you kind of recognize a bit of a weakness. The weakness is that you just simply don't know exactly what you're most interested in. So fine. But solving that problem by going into a company that specifically puts you in the forefront of multiple business challenges, multiple different industries is quite self-aware.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I'm sure I have other flaws, but you know, <laughs> self, self-awareness, I, I, I think is actually as a leader of a business is something that is often forgotten, which I think is a really big, trade uh you know understanding your weaknesses is as important as pontificating about your strength
0: i agree and so you're you're going through this process you're working in multiple businesses you kind of mentioned yourself you saw media as a way of interest right so how did that then guide your next decision path because you're now you've worked at boston consulting for 10 years you've come over you've learned in the united states now you're 10 years into your career now you're deciding hey listen I really do have a passion for media. I want to go to attack that. Talk to me about that decision point to like go down that path.
1: It was a really interesting decision point because I did have that passion uh, for media, but and maybe that falls also in the category of self-awareness. I also knew that what I was really passionate about is actually leading people to affect change. So not just what you do in consulting is you come up with, you know, the ideas, you do the analysis, you advise people. But you really can't effectively lead the change because that's not your role. Right. So I was relatively self-aware that I didn't have really the chops or the experience necessary to get into that role. And while I didn't know that you know, I really wanted to be the CEO ultimately or not, but I, I said like, you know, I really want to lead people. So uh, my first stint after that was like, how can I get that experience to lead people? And this was around the, you know, the turn of the century. Well, big, big statement to make. Turn of the century, two thousands, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, where you know there was the the then uh, infamous first dot com bubble burst. That's right. And I went to a company which is a very large media company. Um, you know, in, in 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 the world, it's it's a German German based company called Bertelsmann, and they were sifting through the rubble of the dot com burst, uh, the bubble that had burst, and that allowed me to actually get experience. I always. Uh, likened it to being in the emergency room of a hospital. You know, you I kind of had to jump in, stop the bleeding, and some businesses decide, are we going to fix that, sell it, or close it? And, you know, it was sort of a uh, a, a very fast way to acquire some of the operational jobs that that I thought I needed and, and I certainly got. And from then on, you know, I really, and again, it gave me a broad spectrum on media. They were in broadcast television. They were in publishing their own Random House, the, uh, the, the, the book publisher, they own a music business, BMG. g So it gave me a really quick education around that. And then I really went into my first gig as, as a CEO in the assessment business with Harcourt uh, down in San Antonio, Texas.
0: And so you're at the assessment company you eventually go over to Elsevier, which is online. I guess you, you could probably describe it better than me, but it's it's an education company as well. Uh, like you, you sign up.
1: It really isn't, Albert. What, what not. You know, it's it's essentially uh, providing information to healthcare professionals, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, or whether you're a researcher. What we were doing is we were providing you all the information that you needed, whether that was journal content, or whether that was book content, or online content. So it was geared not necessarily to the traditional learner, but it was geared towards the prof- professional that needed to make decisions in their job, in front of patients, and when doing their research.
0: I'm glad you framed it that way, because looking uh, looking at it, it looks like, to me, it looks like it's a uh, education-based. It well, there really was an education knowledge.
1: component, because we had a nursing business, which was a smaller part of the business that helped nurses in nursing school educate themselves. So there was an education element in it, but the bulk of the business was really focused on professionals.
0: So you can see your career track starting to hone in, right? And each along the way, you're you're elevating your status, your position. I got to ask back if you backed up back to who you were. Let's say coming over from Germany, going to Columbia for the first time. Did you envision that you were going to be CEO of a company, or did you think to yourself, I, "I'm just going to come here and educate myself and learn as much as I can and see what I can do"?
1: Actually, at the time, I didn't even know what that acronym st- stood for CEO, and then I learned it. Obviously, in business school, you learn it, and it's right. like, "Huh, okay, uh, that's interesting." But you know, I have no idea how to get there or whatever. So it was definitely uh, an acquired taste rather than a destination that I was destined to reach.
0: So let's talk about those early days at Cengage, right? So now you've already served as CEO of a, bit of, of a couple of businesses, but now here you are, you're at Cengage and it's you talk about that big transformation that you said, hey, listen, we're going to change this. Now, a lot of times in big organizations, some of the CEOs we've had from startups, it's easy to get everyone aligned that this is what we're going to do. But then at a company that's already established, it may be a little bit different. What was it first like when you were going to say, hey, we're going to transform this company to do something a little bit different?
1: You know, just to put a, put a few numbers around it. So we had 5,000 employees at Sengage when I joined. Uh, we were owned by a private equity fund who uh, bought the companies five years prior for an absolute astronomical amount of money and had put a lot of debt on the business. So <laughs> okay. we were crushed under the, the debt load. Uh, but even more importantly, the business model that you and I discussed earlier, the, the fundamental you know, higher ed textbook publishing model was broken. Uh, so we had a broken balance sheet, we had a broken business model, and almost worst of all, we had a broken culture. The vast majority of people in the organization had lost faith in their ability to do anything. Really? They were basically, they saw what was going on and they said, holy macro! how will we ever get out of it? And we have no confidence that we can do it ourselves. So that was the situation that I found. And I think that the first thing I did, which might surprise you, is I was actually shutting up and listening to people. And I was listening to frontline people. What were they saying? What were they telling me? And they told me all those things that I just described to you And, uh, you know, what we figured out is the first thing we got to do, we got to fix the balance sheet because that could be life threatening. So we went through a chapter 11 restructuring. And the second thing is we had to fix the culture. And the third thing we had to fix the business model. So it was, it was truly heavy lifting.
0: What was that like? I guess in your first couple of days, you're hearing, I mean, arguably this is all bad news, right? You're hearing things that are not positive. Uh, so what were you thinking? Did you think that you had made a mistake or were you like, okay, this is a big challenge. I want to, I want to tackle
1: this. Both. (laughs) I will say there were moments in the middle of the night that I woke up and asked my wife and said, like, what the hell did I get myself into? (laughs) And uh, there were clearly other moments, and there were the, 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 the majority of the moments that I was actually really excited and invigorated primarily by the conversations I had with people on the front lines who told you a lot of great stuff. They told you a lot of stuff that was wrong, which I described to you, but they also said, like, you know, hey, we've got great content. We've got great relationship with faculty. Uh, we've got actually some nascent digital assets that are really cool. But I don't think we're putting the puzzle together in the right way. So I would say I was, uh, you know, call it 80% excited, 10% scared, and 10% what the hell did I get myself into?
0: <laughs> but in those, in that 10% of, uh, 80% of that hopeful, I mean, sounds like you were hearing some great ideas or advice or things like people, the people that were, like you mentioned, whether they were in sales or service or actual production, sounds like the, you, you heard some great ideas of how the business could potentially pivot itself to, to deliver more value for its
1: customers. Absolutely, I heard some great ideas and almost most importantly, Albert, what I heard was a great desire to reconnect with the mission of this business. In other words, there are a lot of people who said, you know what, I came here 10 years ago to Cengage, I love the business, I love the business model, I don't recognize this company anymore. It seems that we are sort of a profit-maximizing entity that is completely divorced from what our customers really expect of us. Can we fix that? And that to me became really the clarion call of where we needed to go.
0: Gotcha, so now here you are, you're a couple, you know, it sounds like a couple weeks or maybe some months on the job, you've gathered this information. What was the first big move? I guess you made to say, like, okay, this is how we begin to transform.
1: So the first big move that is that was all-consuming in the beginning, but but then eventually not that decisive was obviously the filing for Chapter 11, fixing the balance sheet. Let's put that on the side. Uh, you know, a lot of ugly stuff in 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 a court uh, in in uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, but that was really not the, the the most exciting stuff. The most exciting stuff that that happened was what I described before with connecting the people in the organization back to the mission of the organization. And for that, it was important that we clearly identified who is our customer. As I said before, it's a student and it's the faculty. So what did we do for the students? And then figuring out with the employees and with thousands of them, you know, through discussion and debate, like what is it that we jointly believe in? And we call it our credo. What is it that we jointly believe in? And that became uh, essentially a living document that still to this day lives in the organization that we live it every day. And it starts, we believe in the power and joy of learning, which sounds like a trivial thing for an education company, but it was something that a lot of people thought we had lost our way on. So we established the credo and then we started piece by piece to rebuild the company from the ground up. So you got, you've gathered everyone together.
0: How did you, I guess, you know, the credo, it's still an amazing thing because here you are, you're still the leader of a 5,000 headcount or it might be a little bit smaller now due to some of the chapter 11 stuff. But how did, you, how did you get unification, right? Because here you are, you're a new leader and then kind of people are looking, some of them are from the old guard. Uh, some of them have given you great advice of what they want to get back to, right? And so coming up with something that I guess universally, or at least majority of people believe, it's not an easy task. And the reason why I ask that is because a lot of the founders we talk with and um, company CEOs we talk with talk about this, this concept of alignment, that it's, it's actually paramount in order to get your organization to move forward. And a lot of people agree that alignment is key, but they don't really know how to get there. So I, I, wa- I, I want to really focus in on how you guys got there and what it was like in that experience of drafting or writing this credo.
1: Yeah, yeah, Albert, really good question, and I think you're absolutely right. You're putting your finger on it. It's probably one of the biggest challenges of, of most of the CEOs I talk to. And the reality of it is there are no shortcuts. In other words, it does take time because alignment is not the worst thing you can do as a leader, as a leadership team is lock yourself up in a room and say, let me come out with the most uh, you know, elegant way of putting words on a mug or a t-shirt or a hat <laughs> and say, this is now our alignment, right? Guys, all get in line, right? <laughs> yeah. This is not how it works. You have to do it bottom-up. So you did it through literally a series of hundreds of workshops, with ranging from you know, 10 to 30 people in the room, uh, with the leadership team uh, in the room with them, uh, talking about what brings you here, distilling up what is the, the the shared, you know, the shared set of beliefs that I described before. And uh, that, that does take time. It took us the better part of a, for, for, of a year. And you can imagine, you know, my board, uh, some, you know, industry observer said, what the heck are you doing? You're in Chapter 11. <laughs> and, you know, the business model is falling apart. And you're spending time with your employees sitting in a conference room talking about what they believe in. And the answer is yes, exactly. That's what I'm doing. So that, so that I, 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 was
0: thinking the exact same thing because you had to have, there had to have been resistance, right? And it looks, sounds like there was outside resistance. There might be internal resistance, but here I am. You know, we're in chapter eleven. Things are looking bleak. I got a new CEO, and all he wants to do is talk about what I believe in. I mean, there has to be. How did you? I guess how did you convince people that this was a worthy endeavor?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say the, the one thing. I slightly disagree in, in your characterization is it's not the only thing we did. I mean, oh, there gotcha. were a lot Sorry, of blocking and tackling that we did. We did away with a lot of, you know, uh, let's say short-term organizational challenges, business challenges, and we delivered the results. In other words, gotcha. we really focused the business on uh, what was essential. But in parallel, we did the culture work. And in parallel, that was important that we spend the necessary time. So I wasn't spending 100% of my time on it, but I was certainly spending 40% of my time on it, and I was very judicious with what what I did with the remaining 60%. So as you developed this credo, did you start to?
0: I guess how long once the credo is established, plus your other culture initiatives, plus your um, you know your reorgs, how organizational changes, when did you start seeing? I guess upward momentum. Was it it? You know, months after? Was it, you know, two quarters after? How did it look as you started coming out?
1: You see some early, you know, some early signs, you know, probably a few months in, but that, these are early signs. Before you see the organization actually moving in a consistent way, you're talking two or three years in. I gotcha. mean, there is just no way that you can see this, that all of a sudden say, Hallelujah, people will say, like, oh, yeah, this is the right way people are deeply skeptical, particularly people in our case that came from a very broken system, a very broken culture, a broken business model. They are skeptical, and they're skeptical of you as a leader, and you have to earn their trust. And the trust you earn is by staying consistent and leading by example and really showing people that you mean it. I can't tell you how many people came to me in the beginning and said, look, dude, you seem like a nice guy, and you certainly talk a nice game, but... I am skeptical that you've got to be here 12 months from now. You're probably just here to take us through bankruptcy and then you're going to leave. And, you know, you can tell people what you want, but they have to see it. They right. can't. You have to experience it. And, and that's why, you know, now seven and a half years in, I'm still earning the trust of the people. I, I think I have the trust of the majority of the people, but it's a long process. What was different about Cengage two years after you started? I think what was different is we had regained our footing, and particularly what we had regained is the confidence in making decisions. And that was not the confidence that I had in my decisions. It was the confidence of people much lower in the organization who said, like, actually, I can make a decision and not feel like, you know, I'm going to be punished for making that decision or constantly ask for permission. And this is when we started to really innovate the business. And let me give you a more concrete example of yeah. this. In the in the uh, publishing industry, renting books was considered to be the enemy of the business, right? Because if students rented books, that meant basically they were not buying books. So they were not giving us revenue.
0: Yeah. There were like online services at this time, I think like Chegg and things like that, that are just becoming more and more popular.
1: Exactly. And Chegg was, because I mean, you couldn't if you said the word Chegg within Cengage, people would crucify you. They said, oh my God, they're the enemy, etc." So I went to the, you know, I went to the CEO of Chegg and I said like, look dude, let's just figure out how your business model works, how our business model works, maybe we can actually work better together. And that was not an idea that I had that came from inside the organization. They said like, you know what, instead of fighting this model, since students actually want to rent, why don't we partner with a rental company and figure out a way that we can both win in this model and that the student ultimately wins. And that's what we did for Chegg and that's what we did with Amazon. When I came in, Amazon was the enemy. Amazon was, you know, the big, you know, the big online retailer that would always squeeze us on prices, etc. Yeah. I went with the most senior guys at Amazon. I went back and said, let's figure out a way to serve students better. And both with Chegg and Amazon, we developed, you know, essentially rental models that allow us to participate in the revenue and makes their life easier because we are basically supplying them with, uh, you know, with, with the materials that they need to rent. So it's, it's, it's a win-win situation. And this was a not, not an idea from the top down, but it was an idea that came literally from the sales organization within Cengage. I
0: want to explore that moment, you know, where Chag and Amazon, I'm assuming they kind of were, they were open arms to this idea of partnership or did it have to take a little convincing as well?
1: No, they were, they were open. I mean, we, we basically tackled it as we tackle every problem. We kind of were very transparent. We laid out what our you know, economics are. They laid out what their economics were. We said like, well, the best way is actually instead of you buying, to make it very concrete, instead of you buying the books from us, right, and then renting them five, six times to students, why don't we give you the books for free? And every time you rent, we get a certain share of the, of the rental revenue. And they said, that's great because then we're not sitting on obsolete inventory. So that helps us. And for the student, it was great because we are not, no longer fighting with, for instance, as you said, the new editions, right? It yeah. was a way of the industry to fight the rental model. Because once you had a new edition, you had a lot of obsolete inventory with the old edition. So that was a way to And we said, like, we're not doing that anymore. So now all of a sudden, our interests are aligned with the rental companies and with the student.
0: I'm guessing that shortly after this experiment, your guys, the Cengage revenues just continued to increase, more customer happiness, more satisfaction, companies start seeing like, this is, this is the future.
1: Well, you know, I, I, th- that was the plan, Albert. Uh, the <laughs> <reality> <laughs> and the reality, the reality that hits is that you know, the higher education system as a whole in the United States, uh, you know, you went to college, my kids go to college, I went to college, etc. but the system is under enormous pressure. And as you know, enrollment in uh, higher education is down and has yes. been down for now a decade. So the amount of people going, taking higher education continues to be under pressure. The amount of revenue that, you know, post material suppliers have made is being under pressure. So what we did do is we gained market share from the competition cause we innovated, but the market in total has declined, uh, you know, overall. So we were fighting an uphill battle Uh, But we were winning share and we were doing
0: better than the competition. Speaking to that declining enrollments, do you think that's going to change or do you think college enrollments are going to continue to decline? And I guess, you know, what does that mean for Cengage in regards to your business model? Do you have to think of non-traditional ways? Because there's probably there's still more people, right? If there's less people going to college, do more people still need the same amount of education? Do you start thinking of like, how do I get outside of maybe traditional, just traditional college? Kind of hearing your ideas of what do you think is going to happen? given the fact that enrollments are declining and possibly continue to decline?
1: Spot on with that question. Uh, So our assumption is that traditional higher ed two and four year schools enrollment is going to continue to decline for the foreseeable future. We don't think it's going to fall off a cliff. It's not going to decline to the tune of like 10% year over year, but it's going to decline one to 2% year over year on a consistent basis. However, education and the need for learning is not declining. Right, people want to have alternatives. Right, I mean, what is God given about two or four years? Right, and what is God given about a degree? It's a very convenient way for the system to organize itself, but it is certainly not something that uh, that is God given. So we are finding increasingly alternative way: certificates, shorter courses, little sprints. Maybe you just want to learn a new programming language, and you want to learn it in like two or three, two or three days or one or two weeks and our the, the beauty for us is at Cengage is our content is still relevant regardless right. of essentially how long the course is so we are increasingly looking for opportunities to actually bring this content to alternative forms where people get learning whether it's in whether they are at work or they're in a two to four-year education uh, institution it doesn't really matter to us because we've got the content that is relevant got it
0: now I got to imagine the demand and thirst and the subject matter just continues to expand as well. If you take something as simple as, pro- like not simple, actually, take something like programming, right? New languages are popping up all the time. If you think about when iOS app language and the education courses that came along with it to teach students how to program in that language, you know, those courses took a while to get, you know, state curriculum approvals or whatever the case may, you know, there are very few universities, if any. Within a year of the iPhone debuting, teaching this teaching programming on iOS, the languages that are, people are using to develop technology continues to expand. And I don't see that stopping. So how does, how does a company like Cengage, who is you know, going to be the trusted source of education material, going to be the authority in producing material, how do you, how do you guys plan to keep up, I guess, with the appetite of various knowledge that's going to be created?
1: Absolutely. And, and Albert, you, you were pointing out actually the two ends of the spectrum. In an earlier question, you said like, well, you know, history really doesn't change all that much from, you know, one semester to another. But on the other hand, program languages do. Yeah. And I think that points exactly to, to the answer. We need, we need to and we are becoming a lot more flexible in which frequency we're going to update the content, right? I mean, some content we update in frequency of like on a monthly basis, some other content we update, you know, like every two or three years because it really doesn't change all that much. Right. Right. Uh, Calculus doesn't change all that much uh, over, over the years, uh, but programming language uh, does change. uh, You know, American history, depending on the election cycle might change in one year dramatically and in, in another year, not that much. So, That flexibility is absolutely crucially important, and that is what we are focusing on in terms of the the generation of the content. And thankfully, technology today allows you to do that, to become more flexible. So having a platform and a system that allows you to continuously update your materials as opposed to doing it once a year or once every two years, I think is is a crucial element of that. So, you know, you're transforming
0: from a traditional publisher. You're going into the tech services I would say education services enabled by technology company, you know, you're transforming very fast, but also the skill set you need at Cengage has to be transforming very fast. How has you, or what, what is your philosophy on like, I guess re- talent and recruiting because every year it seems like you need new skills to work at Cengage to deliver on the products and services you guys aspire to deliver.
1: Uh, absolutely, Albert. And and I, I think the answer to that is yes, you have to start you know, in your own four walls, so to speak. Uh, And uh, we have a combination of very intense recruiting efforts every year. Um, And we also have a a very strong focus on learning and development in the organization. So teaching people on the job because we have people, uh, frankly, that have been in the publishing industry for 30, 40 years. Uh, But, you know, we can retrain many of them, not all of them. And some people will decide, look, this is not for me. I want the, you know old publishing industry of yore, and that's fine, but that's not us. So, you know, there is, uh, there is an intense focus on learning and development, but also a very crucial uh, focus on recruiting and attracting new talent to the organization. And uh, just to combine it with something we said before, one of the critical questions, how we recruit people is how well they fit with our credo and how well they fit with the culture that we want to build in the organization, not just the technical skills that they have.
0: Here you are, you're leading a transformational company, subscription, education subscription as a service. Like you're talking about, like you already mentioned price points of getting your course materials at what used to be the price point of maybe a, you know, a single textbook. Have you maintained contact to the people back home that would grow up? Are they wowed by what you've accomplished or are they still not really know what you're doing?
1: <laughs> no, I think, I think they are slightly... Wowed, although they're probably not quite sure why they're wowed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I've made big unfortunately, my parents passed away, so my biggest wow factor, uh, my biggest fans kind of uh, unfortunately passed on. But uh, no, I do think I, I do think it's a bit of the story of you know kind of now the uncle in America and uh, what he did. Uh, they're not quite sure. I mean, the, the American education system is, is is very unique in its in its particular uh, particular ways, and uh, the. Uh, I think in many respects, what we just talked about doesn't exist in many other markets. Like, for instance, this, uh, you know, these high price points, they don't exist in most other markets around around the world. So once you get down to the nitty gritty, the understanding is probably a little less, but, you know, I think they're very pleased that uh, I'm off the payroll of the German taxpayer. <laughs> so, you
0: know, given your, given your ins- unique insight and your knowledge of the educational system, how do you approach, or like, do people ask you about advice for what they think is a good path for their children? I'm, I'm curious if the people in your community look to you to say like, hey, what should I do with my kid? Because if traditional education is getting more expensive and less people are depending on it.
1: It's really interesting, yes. There is a lot of talk, Albert, about uh, people are seeking alternatives yeah. and they're saying, you know, all my kids, and I, I actually had this just over the holidays. My uh, my oldest was home, and he is uh, in Michigan in, in, in college. And, you know, he... He said, ah, you know, how difficult certain courses were. And, you know, he wasn't really that, he's not that academically inclined, let me put it that way. And he, uh, and I said, like, dude, if you want to take that money and you want to, you know, start something and, you know, buy a auto repair shop, if that's more of interest to you, you, you consider that. He said, Dad, how can you say that? That's ridiculous. No, I got to get an education. So what I'm trying to say is a lot of people talk about it, but I don't think a lot of people necessarily at this point make the decision and say that I'm going to forego an education of two to four year college education altogether. And I think that is actually per se a good thing because the data would still support that actually, if you get that education, your, um, your expectancy of getting a jo- good job is better, job security is better, etc. But we as a system have to become more flexible and not force everybody into this and say, you know, look, if you want to go and acquire a certain skill set, we've got to give you a more flexible way of doing it. And most importantly, a lower cost way. The cost of college has become a really massive burden for students. And, you know, I don't think we need to force everybody into that level of debt. And we should. Yeah, you know,
0: you mentioned it. So I'll say that I have, two, I have three children, excuse me, all under the age of 11. So college is, of course, a possibility. So, we, you know, me, my wife and I are saving. But we looked it up and I live in North Carolina. NC State which is down the road from me it 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 says right now today 2020 that I should rec- it recommends that I save up $25,000 a year it's not hard to figure out that I got then any 300 grand between now and then and it makes you wonder like you know is it makes you it really does make you think i think i don't think that my parents had the same thoughts that i did which was is college actually necessary because i'm one of the people now that's I'm very much so in that, in that mindset, because also, and I'd love to hear your commentary on this. You also see with the competitive nature of college, uh, somewhere the more, let's say affluent areas where like parents are almost competing to get their kids into these schools. Like where element like elementary preschool, even there's like high tuition prices. There's like testing requirements. There's, and then some of these parents are probably doing the homework for their children because they don't want their kids to fall behind by by score alone, not not by actual education, because if it was by edu- actual education, they wouldn't do that. It's, it seems a little crazy, right? People are paying to compete to pay so that they can pay the largest ticket price possible for a student that may or may not be interested in school.
1: Well, Albert, I'm living in the epicenter of paranoia as I'm living <laughs> in Manhattan, you know, so I, you can, I can imagine, you can only begin to imagine if you live in North Carolina. In Manhattan, these people start with pre-K, getting completely paranoid of how they can get their little girl into Harvard. And they spend a ton of money, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is this is not the real world. The real world is out there. The real world is, you know, a single mom, two children, trying to get a better skill set to get a better job in a community college and having to make trade-offs between paying the electricity bill and paying tuition. That is the reality of the vast majority of the 20 million students in the United States wow. and this is the reality of the marketplace that we're facing and for those people, the, the problem that you're describing is, is, is a million miles away. What they, are, what they are faced with is these very hard choices and I think as a society, we have an obligation and as an industry, we have an obligation to offer these people something that is value for money. It's affordable to them, and it's easily accessible and flexible. And I think as an education system, that is the challenge that is cut out for us for the next, you know, at least 10 years. So
0: I got to ask, do you see Cengage branching even further, uh, maybe downstream, so like K-12 through education or anything like that? Do you, is it already begun, or do you think that's going to be a bigger piece of what you guys will offer?
1: We have a business there, but it's, it's much smaller relative to our higher ed business. But it is certainly something that we are, uh, you know, continuing to look for opportunities to expand in a responsible way. Some of this business is very different than ours. Some of it is a similar way. But yes, it's, it's, it's certainly an opportunity we're looking at.
0: Michael, so you've had an illustrious career. You've done so many different things and you've transformed Cengage. When you look back on your time so far, I know you're not done, but so far,
1: tell me, what are you most proud of? Well, I think there are two things I'm most proud of. One is that uh, we as an organization have found our confidence and our mojo again, and we're clearly leading the industry uh, in in education. And the second thing I'm most proud of is uh, what we have actually accomplished for our customers, the students. So after the introduction of Sengej Unlimited, so far as of today, we have saved students over $125 million dollars in, in cost for uh, course materials, and by the end of this academic year, this number will have grown to one hundred sixty million dollars. We wow. have over two million subscribers, and uh, by the way, Albert, one of the uh, the biggest uh, savers are actually in the NC state uh, in your in your backyard. So uh, I think we're on a good track there, and I'm I'm really proud of that accomplishment.
0: No, that's, that's amazing. The, every, every dollar you can relieve of the, you know, student debt load or whatever the case may be. I mean, obviously that financial pressure relieving it, huge help to anyone who's out there learning. Michael, we appreciate you having on the show, but before you go, we always want to ask a couple of personal questions so that people can get to know you a little better. Absolutely. All right. Tell me what outside of works engaged. obviously that occupies quite a bit of your time. What do you like to do when you have free time? So
1: first of all, like you, I have, uh, I have three boys and they're still, I mean, except for the oldest one, they're still at home. So I try to spend as much time uh, with my wife and my three boys as I possibly can and, and do all kinds of sports activities, uh, as you can imagine, boys, boys will do at that age. Uh, okay. So that's number one. Uh, I love to cook uh, and occasionally I get in a round of golf and uh, that's pretty much sums it up. Although the one thing I will say, and this is more about a sort of maintaining some sanity is, I am a pretty dedicated yogi, so I do yoga on a, on a, on a very regular basis. Okay. So you're,
0: you're, you're, you're a health guy. I mean, sports, yoga, you're cooking. So that means you're not eating out probably as much. You're a healthy guy.
1: I, I hope. Knock on wood.
0: All right. Let's hear it. What is your favorite? What is your best dish that you cook that your wife would say, Michael, when Michael makes this it's superb signature dish, pad thai, pad thai. Okay. Well, Asian flair. And is that the style of cooking you most prefer to do? Or do you like to explore all different types of cuisines?
1: Pretty much across the board. I cook Italian. I love Italian cooking. I love French cooking. Uh, I actually got in my, whatever decades ago, some formal education in Italian cooking. My sister actually lives in Italy. Uh, so I got, I got that. Uh, but I, I love to experiment with different cuisines.
0: So your parent obviously is first. You mentioned that. What advice would you give to I guess parents out there who are thinking of their their child's educational journey? The biggest advice I would give them
1: is listen to your children. Uh and that doesn't mean that they're always right, but I think all too often we are project our own insecurities uh into, you know, our children's path and we're trying to live vicariously through our children and maybe that is um, phenomenon of living in Manhattan for over 30 years that, that you think that, but I definitely think that a lot of people do that. So so listen to them and truly find out what they are passionate about, what they're good at, uh, what they really love to do, try to coach them, but don't try to force them into a direction uh, that ultimately will make them maybe successful in getting into college, but not a very happy and productive. citizen. Thank you
0: for joining us. Uh, you know, we, uh, We always love having guests of all different types, but education, what you guys are doing is of particular interest to me, given the fact that, you know, of course, my kids are heading in that direction. And, uh, you know, it's always good to know what the options are.
1: Absolutely. And good luck with it.
0: Awesome. All the best. Take care.
1: Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.